dear congregation of the Lord, how do we live life to the fullest? Or how to have life in abundance? For us covenant people, the answer is clear. Trust in Christ. We confess with our catechism that our only comfort in life and in death is that we are not our own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And we know that embracing that comfort is how to live life to the fullest, don't we? At the personal level, embracing that comfort expresses itself as a delight in God's instructions. And such a delight, in turn, empowers us to say no to the world, the flesh, and the devil. But how does embracing that unique comfort manifest itself in our interactions with the public authorities. To be more precise, how do we live in that unique comfort when the authorities, the kings of the earth, attack the church in an attempt to rebel against God? How do you live in that comfort when they rob your face in all kinds of sexual perversions, when they rob your face in the cult of death, in the abortion of hundreds of thousands of babies with your tax money. What do you do? Do you kiss the ring and surrender? No. God forbid. We must never do such things. But what do we do then? And the answer is simple although difficult to perform. The answer is that we stand firm in the faith, maintaining our allegiance to Christ and refusing to be intimidated. Why? Because we know who is in charge, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So to increase our courage, the Lord has given us some too. Therefore, it is my privilege to preach the good news of Christ's victory using Psalm 2. The theme of this gospel proclamation is this. When kings, re- when kings rebel, stand firm in the faith. When kings rebel, yeah, this is the proper pronunciation. When kings rebel, stand firm in the faith. And under this theme, we will see Three points. First, the king's rebellion. Second, the Lord's response. And then third, his Messiah. His Messiah's warning. The king's rebellion, the response of the Lord, and then the warning from the Messiah. Our first point, the king's rebellion. Our text starts with a question. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Why does the psalmist 
ask this question. Which kind of question is this? The question is a rhetorical question. The psalmist expresses his amazement at what the nations are doing. But why is the psalmist amazed? The psalmist is amazed because he knows that all their actions and noises are futile, delusional, useless. It is the kind of amazement that you will have if you saw a man on the beach determined to empty the sea with a spoon. The psalmist says that they are raging. So what they are doing is still serious, even though the psalmist is very much amazed. And the word rage here carries the imagery of an angry horse who is prancing and snorting. So that's the picture of the nations. But in practice, what are the nations doing? In practice, the kings of the earth are conspiring against God. They convene, they set up alliances, and they gather all the military might to fight against God and his anointed. Notice that the rebellion in our text is a universal rebellion, a worldwide rebellion. Why? Because the nations here stand for all the people who do not belong to God. And notice also that the word plot, which is used here in our text, can be also translated as meditate. The same word meditate that we had in Psalm 1. So while the godly is meditating on God's instructions to obey the Lord, the kings of the earth on their side, they are meditating on how to rebel. So those kings who are supposed to rule on God's behalf are rebelling against him. But what is the purpose of the rebellion? The kings want to be free to rule by themselves without answering to God. They see God as a hindrance to them. And they see God's instructions and laws as chains, a bit as a leash that you put on the dog to prevent him from moving everywhere. The kings of the earth mindset is the one that our first parents, Adam and Eve, had in paradise when they embraced the lies of the devil and disobeyed God. God had established them as rulers over his entire creation. But what did they do? They listened to the devil in believing that God was restraining them. And in their arrogance, they jumped over the safety barrier that God had placed for them. And their fall was disastrous. We can see that around us today. But Christ, our king, also faced a similar rebellion when he came on this earth at his first coming. The kings of the earth at that time, in the person of the Jewish leaders, Pilate and Herod, rebelled against God, against Christ. Think with me for a moment. The people of Israel in scriptures 
are called the vineyard of, of the Lord with Jesus as the ultimate king. The reason of existence of the people of Israel is Jesus. But when Jesus came, those in authority on his behalf did not acknowledge him as their king. And what did they do? They crucified him. Those rebellious leaders thought that by getting rid of Jesus, they will have the kingdom and the people for themselves. But where are they today? They have all perished. But Jesus is alive, and his, kingdoms, and his kingdom remains. The faith of those rebellious leaders is the faith of all the kings who oppose God. What does God do to those kings? He puts them in a coffin. Or as we say here in Canada, six feet under. Therefore, dear congregation, do not let fear overwhelm you when governments put laws against the church and use violence against her because they want to rebel against God. Why shouldn't you be afraid? You shouldn't be afraid because they will fail. Remember that all the time, they will fail. So with this, we come to the end of our first point. We have just seen that the psalmist is amazed at the delusional, horse-like rage of the kings of the earth. The psalmist is amazed because he knows that their plots are vain. But how does God, the master, the master of the kings of the earth, how does he react to such a worldwide rebellion? Our second point, we answer this question. The Lord's response, his Messiah. One who does not have a high view of God might think, oh man, a worldwide rebellion. The entire world is against God. Certainly, God in heaven is stressed. He's sweating. No. Wrong. God laughs. He laughs at them. But this is not a joyful laughter. It is a laughter of mockery, of scorn. The second line of our psalm makes it clear by telling us that God laughs at them in derision. The one who sits in heaven, meaning the one who is ruling heaven, does not take the kings of the earth with all the seriousness with which they carry themselves. You can picture the scene for yourself by imagining a less than a pound mouse who is determined to attack a a seven, seven, 700 pounds grizzly bear. Fat chance for the mouse, right? But the difference between God and the kings of the earth is by far infinitely greater than the difference between bears and mice. So because of his great majesty that the rebels have insulted, the Lord is deeply angry. Do you remember what the catechism confesses about the necessity of the Lord's anger? 
In Lord's Day 4, the Catechism says this, God's justice requires that sin committed against the most, high, the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. The rebels here are less than chaff before God. All the tanks, missiles, aircraft carrier, nuclear bombs, fighter jets, and everything else that you can imagine account for nothing before God. He can destroy them in a moment. Here, the psalmist say that the Lord terrifies the, re- the rebels by blasting his heated, his heated anger. And such anger can manifest itself in several ways. For example, the sudden heart attack that he gave to Herod, or the mental and political pressures that led Pilate to commit suicide, or even the military destruction of the Jewish establishment by the Roman army. In this psalm, the Lord goes further. The Lord terrifies the rebels by confirming his support for the Messiah that he has appointed. But what is a Messiah? Messiah and Christ have the same meaning. They are just different translations from the same word. Messiah for Messiah in, in Hebrew and Christ from Christos. A Messiah or Christ is someone who has, someone God has anointed to rule God's people or to, establish, to accomplish God's purposes. In this psalm, God empowers the Messiah to rule over the earth and destroy the rebels. That's what we read in verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So we read that God does not negotiate with the rebels. He bluntly says to them, I myself have installed my king on the temple mount in Jerusalem. My Messiah will bring to you the furious terror that your rebellion deserves. So those rebellious kings fail to understand two things. First, they fail to understand that God is infinitely greater than them. Second, they fail to understand that God is immutable. God's standards do not change. Therefore, it is useful for them to kick or scream against those standards. From this, we should remember then that God will never change his standards to accommodate anyone, even if that person is the leader of all the nations of the earth. We should also remember to refuse to be intimidated when those earthly authorities rage against the church. Why? Why should we remain calm and obedient to God? Because Jesus, the head of the church, has the name above all names, and he he is infinitely greater than all the rebels. And because Jesus Christ is at the same time God, he is immutable. So his plans of salvation for the church stand firm 
no matter what the rulers of the earth do. So far, we saw that God laughs at the universal rebellion because all their strength and rage account for nothing to him. God answered the rebels by appointing a Messiah on Zion. And the Messiah is the one who will execute God's terror on the rebels. But who is that Messiah? What does the Holy Spirit teach us about him in our text? Let us continue and see. Verse 7 reads like this. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the psalmist in verse 7 says that he will proclaim and public, publicly announce the decree. He will preach the decree. But what is the decree about? It is a public adoption statement. Who gives the decree in our text? The Lord gives the decree. Who receives the decree? The psalmist. So the me that we, that we read here, the Lord said to me, the me stands for the psalmist. So God gives a public statement of the psalmist's adoption. In verse 8 and 9, the decree continues. There God says that the psalmist can just ask and receive all the earth as an inheritance. So we understand that the psalmist is a king, the king whom God has installed in Zion, the anointed one against whom the kings of the earth are rebelling. Now, let us think a bit. Who in the Old Testament, among the, the big and important characters that you know, who among them was a king who had been publicly adopted by God? The answer is simple, right? David. David is that person. So David is the one speaking in this psalm from verse 1. Did David fight against ungodly kings? Yes, he did. Did David rule over an empire? Yes, he did. But David's empire was quite small compared to the big empires that we, that we know and that we have known, and far from universal. So, how can we then say that it is about David? The answer is this. Sure enough, the Hebrews hoped for a universal empire through David, through, through David and his sons. That's why, what we sing also in Psalm 72. But the hope of the faithful Israelites went beyond the Davidic line to the ultimate anointed, the ultimate Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the ultimate Christ. So this psalm, though referring first to David and his line, ultimately points to Jesus, the eternal, natural Son of God. Although Jesus has always been God's Son, he was declared publicly 
to be the son of God before men at his baptism. And God confirmed the declaration with power when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead, as Romans chapter 1 verse 4 tells us. So, dear congregation, this Messiah who is spoken of in our text is your Lord Jesus Christ. He is majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deed, doing wonders, powerful beyond measure, and whose reign is universal. All power in heaven and on earth have been given to him. And now that he is ascended in heaven, he has received a name above every name. From there, he is currently ruling the entire universe. For whose benefit, do you know? For the benefit of the church. The Bible says that God has given him as gift to the church. So we have a privileged position. But let us continue. So we see that the Messiah and therefore Jesus does not tolerate rivals. And he will carry out the sentence that David and his son could not carry because of their sinfulness. Although today many people can still afford to ignore his kingship, no one will be able to do so at Jesus' second coming. He will dash his enemies and ours in pieces. When Jesus Christ comes back, the strength of all the rebels, the rebellious king, will be to him mere fragility, like extra-fragile China. He will break them, as our text says, with a rod of iron, a crush and crush them like a potter's vessel meaning that he will have absolute authority over all the rebels. The knees that did not want to bow down before him in love, he will break and make them to bow in terror. So how do we summarize this part of our text? So in summary, we have seen that verses 7 and 9 show to us that David is the anointed king the psalm is referring to. But David himself is a type of Christ, the one to, who is the ultimate fulfillment of the psalm. And Christ is already ruling, but his rule will be fully visible at his second coming. So the universal undisputed rule that the psalm speaks about will be fully manifested, or is already manifested with Christ's kingship, but it will be fully visible to everyone when Christ will come back. But our text continues. Verse 10 starts with a now, which signifies the beginning of a response. Response to what? Response to the decree of God that David has published. But this call to response is, in fact, a warning. And so let us then see the Messiah's warning, our third point. 
the Messiah's warning. In verse 10, we read, Now therefore, O king, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. So David is saying to them, In light of God's decree, I exhort you to understand the precarious situation in which you are and in humility to make sensible decisions. David is speaking to the kings of the earth. But what does God expect from those kings of the earth when he's asking them, when he's speaking to them through David, asking them to make sensible decisions? God expects the kings of the earth to serve him in reverence. The world and its people are God. He's the one who has made everything. And, he's the, and he is the one who has appointed those in authority. Therefore, they do not have the right to govern as they would like in a selfish way. They should rule as God expects them to rule. And that is with justice and love for the people. In other words, they must abide by the boundaries and instructions that God has given to them. But that's not all. Our text says that they must also kiss the sun. What does this mean? It means having a personal allegiance to the Messiah because one or someone has accepted the authority structure that God has put in place. Translated to our current period of redemptive history, it means, or to kiss the sun means to embrace the lordship of Christ. What does it involve, embracing the lordship of Christ? Embracing the lordship of Christ involves not only a public commitment to govern in a Christ-honoring manner, but also a personal commitment to serve Christ, to follow Christ in private. But still, why the kiss? Because kissing was an act of homage to those in authority in the Old Testament. Kissing was also an act of worship. For example, in 1 Samuel 10:1, Samuel kissed Saul to pay him respect because he had been appointed the new king of Israel. In 1 Kings 1, verses 19 to 18, God says to Elijah that he has reserved to himself 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal and who have not also kissed Baal as an act of worship. So why should the kings of the earth embrace from the heart God's messianic rule? They should do so for two reasons, according to our text. First, because it is good for them. God's law is sound and whole. It revives the soul. We sing that in Psalm 19. Second, our text says, lest he, meaning God, be angry and, the, and you perish, you, meaning the kings of the earth, perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. In other words, 
if the kings of the earth do not embrace God wholeheartedly, he will destroy them in his anger. He will consume them like fire, and they will perish in their rebellion. Further, they do not have much time. They must repent before it is too late, before his judgment falls on them. It's like the call of John the Baptist and also Jesus. What was their call? Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. So to whom does the call here apply again? To the king of the earth. Yes, they must rule in a Christ-honoring manner. But the call is also to us. We must all embrace the lordship of Christ. What does it mean to embrace the lordship of Christ? It means living a life of faith-driven obedience to Christ. And what does, it, what does living a faith-driven life entail, considering our text? It entails a firm stand in the faith before the, intimi- the, the intimidation of the kings of the earth. So to live a godly life according to our text implies standing firm when the kings are intimidating us because Christ is our Lord, not the kings of the earth. We should obey Christ and we should not ascribe to them the obedience that is due to Christ. Our text ends with the sentence, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The blessedness spoken of here is the one that we read in Psalm 1, which can be summarized as fruitfulness in our spiritual work, impact for God in this life, and an eternal inheritance at Christ's return. So we understand that just like Psalm 1, Psalm 2 presents us with two ways, the way of life and the way of death. And what does the way of life entail? It entails trust in God, delight in his word. And what comes from such a delight? Power. Yes, the power to shun worldliness, to refuse submission to the kings of the earth rebellion. And how do we refuse such a submission? By standing firm in the faith. So, dear congregation of the Lord, the way of life is narrow and difficult. But the way of death is broad and easy. And it is on that way that you find the wicked, the mockers, and the rebellious kings who want to cast away God's instructions. Our Lord in this psalm urges us to follow him on the way of life. Therefore, let us pray to him to give us the grace that we need to follow him, especially when we face the pressure and intimidations of the kings of the earth.
Amen.